You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Jesse P.S. and I'm the host of the Pod Awful Podcast. We're a comedy show where crazy shit happens. On my show, my girlfriend has called in to break up with me. I've been arrested live and the Secret Service actually investigated me over something I said in the show. We've had such crazy guests as... Mike Cap. Hello, Jesse. This is Andrew W.K. Jesse, this is Gail Gilligan. Jesse, how are you? And here are some of the glowing reviews we've received. Another crass amateur hour podcast. Not for me. Probably not for you either. This podcast once held my mother down and spit in her mouth. We are Pod Awful. We are live every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time over at podawful.tv. And you can check out our podcast anytime at podawful.com. We are, of course, a part of the Pod Awful channel, podcast network. Please check out all the shows over at podawful.net. And until you check us out, have an awful day. <laughs> Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. is Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Rob St. Mary. If I'm not back in five minutes, call the Pope. This week we are celebrating Easter and talking about the 2001 Canadian film Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Directed by Lee DeBarbe and written by Ian Driscoll, the film stars Phil Caracas as the titular slayer of bloodsuckers. The tale has Jesus coming out of retirement to square off against a gaggle of vampires who are plaguing the lesbians of Ottawa. Joined by Mary Magnum and his pal Santos, Jesus has to battle vampires and atheists as he adjusts to the modern world. Rob, was this your first experience with the cinema of Lee DeMarb? You are correct, sir. Actually, I knew the title before I saw the film. I knew the title because among some friends of mine, it was a rather well-known title. We just thought it was hilarious, but I never got along to actually seeing it. So now I've seen it, and I've seen the other ones that connect to it. So... uh, 
and I'm much better for the experience. Thank you. I saw all of the, and when I say all of the, it's not just this Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. This is, I would say, it's probably the, the third in a four-chapter thing or whatever, but we'll get into the whole thing later. But this is... Not, it's a standalone film, but there are other films that kind of support it, let's say. And I definitely saw this one probably back in 2001 when it came out. And I would say that I probably saw it at the Micro Cinefest down in Baltimore. That was always a good place to see all kinds of independent films and probably even saw it on 16mm way back in the day. And I saw the other films that kind of relate to it, the Harry Knuckles films, not at the same time, but also in the same venue. So I was very fortunate to be able to see those with an audience and Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, it's a great film on its own, but I have to say, with an audience of people, like-minded people, like-minded strange people, yeah, it's even better. I'm willing to bet that it's also good with substances. Yeah, definitely. I would say a couple cans of Natty Bow would definitely do you good with this one. Here's to you, and here's to your enjoyment with National Bohemian Beer. Let's talk a little bit more about the plot of Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Really, that's about the plot right there. No, there's a little bit more to it other than just hunting vampires. I appreciate that not only is it kind of a horror film, but you also have some musical things going on in there. A big opening musical number where Jesus is back in town and has his hair cut now after being summoned by a couple of priests who realize what problems are happening in Ottawa. And uh, yeah, I guess Jesus was just kind of hanging out rather than having ascended to heaven or something. So he's just, uh, you know, hanging out in Ottawa. If you want to know where Jesus is at. I found Jesus. He was at the Burger King. He's in most Mexican communities. You're liable to find at least one. It's funny because there's this whole thing with him in the beginning. Obviously, uh, the image that we have from all of the classical paintings of of Christ with uh, the long hair and the flowing robes and the sandals. And then at some point, about halfway through the film, he hooks up with Mary Magnum and she says, you know, you got to do something about this wardrobe. You're sticking out like a sore thumb. And uh, he gets kind of a hip modern reimagining. With some really awesome music behind it, too. There you go. Speaking of music, the composer is actually the guy that plays the guy who's running the thrift store where Jesus and Mary go to uh, get some new threads. And he is very, very into his slang. That's right, Daddy-O. I'm not even sure what a pimp steak is. That dialogue, actually, to me, sounded like someone taking Tarantino's hip dialogue and then making it even more ridiculous. Which I appreciated. The whole film just has this whole aesthetic that I really appreciate. Like, it's all shot, I think it's all shot MOS with them just probably mouthing the dialogue and then replacing it later on. Um, We kind of saw that with, uh, or at least I saw that with Crime Wave. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that one, but it might have been a pre-Rob episode. But that whole idea of, uh, yeah, we're going to save a little bit of money recording the dialogue, and instead we're just going to post-dub it all. Obviously something that the Italians like to do as well, but that one is more for the internationalization of things, whereas this one is much more of a budgetary thing. And then it kind of gives everything um, a very unique feel to it, uh, as the actor's dialogue is a little bit 
overdone sometimes and just it feels like it's from a foreign country even though everyone was originally speaking english yeah that's true the thing about the italians that's interesting and i this is what i had heard years ago was that they shot a lot of stuff at uh, Cinecita studios and that it wasn't soundproof when the sound error came in. So that's the reason why they like post dubbed everything and it just became, well, that's just how we make movies. We just do everything in post. I know that the director is a big fan of Hong Kong cinema and they also do almost all post dubbing over there. Um, at least back when it was, you know, really kind of jumping as far as the amount of films that they would turn out in a year. And that I think was kind of the same thing. Their studio was, I want to say it was like under the path for the flights. So recording audio right near an airport was pretty much impossible. Yeah. See, the the thing is too, is that if you do it post-dub, it allows you the ability to kind of make the voices a little bit more experimental or something. You know what I mean? Like you can actually go in and make it, um, you know, more gravelly or if someone has a lighter voice, you can add to it. It, it kind of reminds me of um, when we talked to uh, Robert Downey about Putney Swope and how he dubbed all of Putney in the film and him putting on that gravelly voice and doing all that stuff. It, it, it allows a certain ability to go in and act it afterwards and add something to it. But like you said, it, it also kind of recalls the genre in a way that this film obviously is is riffing on and having fun with. Yeah, and I don't want to say that it's even just one genre because we do have so many things going on in here. It's like we've got a Santo-type character, Santos, just one letter off from Santo. Santos in here, so we kind of get that Mexican wrestler vibe thing going on. We've got horror with all the vampires. We definitely have comedy running throughout everything. We do have at least one musical number. I kind of wish that there had been more musical numbers as we went through because that opening one is so spectacular and I really was hoping that they would have more. But I do appreciate the way that it ends where Jesus is pretty much rallying all the people around him and then when it comes time to actually do something to put the brakes on this vampire plague of Ottawa that everyone just kind of abandons him. <laughs> so I guess that uh, he's, he's tried to rally the troops through song and maybe he doesn't feel that that's going to be quite so successful to do it a second time. The thing that's also good about the film is some of the philosophical elements of it. Big discussion, obviously, over the last several years in relation to homosexuals and the church. And in this film, they don't shy away from that and actually have a pretty good feeling about lesbians and maybe they're religious, maybe they're not. But uh, just the idea that, you know, these are still children of God and they deserve to be protected from the uh, evil bloodsuckers. And even uh, Jesus' parents are pretty into it, especially his mom. She just loves lesbians because they just get so much done in a day. One of the funniest scenes for me, and it's just a little—it's just a little thing that probably most people wouldn't notice—is they have like a lesbian community center. It says lesbian drop-in center, so it's supposed to be, I guess, the place where you know all the lesbians hang out. And of course, the vampires are attracted to that because they're trying to get at the lesbians and inside the lesbian drop-in center all the movie posters on the wall are all films featuring lesbian characters 
there are a lot of like little clever things that go on in this film and some of them are just little turns of phrase kind of thing and some of them are like you're saying kind of like background images and everything so and that's the thing is that even though I've watched this movie probably five or six times I still pick up little things or I just kind of forget about stuff from the time before and then it always kind of surprises me like the the whole thing when uh they're fighting at the jazz club and jesus breathes in the face of the one vampire and then they do kind of like a little flashback to him buying shawarma and getting the extra garlic sauce and stuff it's like (laughs) no matter how many times i see that i'm just like oh yeah yeah and just laughing my ass off each time well especially in detroit where we come from there's lots of good middle eastern food lots of good shawarma and yes Lots of good garlic sauce. Yeah, I still don't know why Tony Stark didn't know about shawarma. But <laughs> Yeah. You want to get some shawarma? I don't know what it is. We should get some. I kind of like that Mary Magnum is there at first in the story and being kind of a real ass kicker and everything. And then, hey, spoiler alert, but she gets turned into a vampire pretty early in the film, which gives us an opportunity to get Santos in and, and use him as a side character and everything. But I like that uh, the movie has a lot of different plots going on all at the same time. It's not just kind of a one-note um, Jesus film. Definitely not. There's certain aspects of the, the the religious part that I find funny, where you have sort of these punk rock priests and they're riding around on the motor scooter and he's got this spiked mohawk and they actually decided to cut a strip out of the helmet so that the spikes come out of the out of the helmet. And it says, I think, um, on the helmet, pray to live, live to pray. And then when they first meet Jesus, I just I just had to laugh about this. He's supposedly like out baptizing this guy. And the priests show up, and he's like, eh. He just kind of like drops water and then <laughs> turns to want to talk to him. It's just just little throwaway things, little gags, things like that. The part where he's like, uh, yeah, give me some money because I got to go buy some steaks. This is a Jesus character who he has like no supernatural powers, really. When we think of maybe Jesus in other contexts, whether it be you know actual drama or – comedy, which I would say the closest to this in tone is maybe like how South Park does Jesus at times. He sometimes has these like magical powers, like he can perform miracles and things like that. Not not really the case uh, in this film. He's much more sort of an everyday guy who just happens to have kung fu skills. The miracle I'm most famous for is turning water into wine. Can you do it again? Very well. I shall perform the miracle. Behold, here you can see ordinary water. Clear, clean. Okay, now turn around. Turn turn around. Uh, Okay, now turn back. It is now wine. That's it? That's how you did that trick? Well, yeah. That trick sucks, Jesus. Oh, I guess it worked a little better on people 2,000 years ago. He doesn't have a whole lot of powers other than he is an amazing kung fu artist. And he does make a couple references here and there, especially when he offers those priests some lemonade. Lemonade? Will there be enough? Oh, there'll be plenty. 
And then when he uh, is fighting in two locations, which I found to be very, very clever that they would have two fight scenes going on at the same time, that whole cross-cutting of the action scenes. I'm always a big fan of that. And to have your main character in two places at once fighting two groups of bad guys because, you know, I can be everywhere, of which I really appreciated that as well. The one thing that I found kind of funny was that one of Jesus's enemies in the in the film is a group of atheists who I guess are just kind of trying to uh, stop Jesus. What was it? His second coming ass. They're going to shut his second coming ass down, I think is what they, they put it. Well, you know, as as an atheist, if I actually met Jesus, then I think my attitude would change. I would say that they're not so much atheists as anti-theists. There's a difference. Atheist means without theism, but anti means that you're openly hostile to God and religion, which I don't. And these guys definitely are. Yeah, I don't consider myself openly hostile to religion. I just don't happen to have religion. That's all. I think the only time I'm hostile towards religion is when somebody's trying to force it down my throat. So something like um, I was kind of taken aback a few weeks ago when for Trailer Park for Geek Juice, they had me watch the God is Not Dead trailer with Kevin Sorbo and that he's this man who's lost his wife and having this horrible time and he teaches philosophy at college and he says, okay, the first thing I want you to write down is that God is dead. And they have this whole trial because there's this Christian kid in the class and blah, 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 blah. And they're talking about atheism and I'm, and I'm like, well, if Kevin Sorbo really is an atheist, he wouldn't say God is dead. He would just say God doesn't exist. Yeah. Get it right. There's a difference between being an atheist and anti-theist. But anyway, I would say that this group of atheists is kind of funny. I I just laughed at that line. And not only that, but there's this cut over to the Jeep that they all came out of. <laughs> and it's like total clown car action where it's like, all right, you know, there could only be like four people in there. But there's like 40 people that come piling out of the thing. So, and when Jesus is done, he's walking over that huge pile of people. <laughs> yeah. I sent you um, Armor of God with Jackie Chan. Did you have a chance to watch that? No. The only reason I sent that one over was because of a one particular fight that happens in Armor of God, where Jackie Chan faces off against these four Amazonians, and. I think Lee Dunbar d- definitely was a fan of that, um, and you'll hear more about that when we talk to him in an upcoming interview here. Watching that scene on the beach when the three vampires are going after uh, Jesus on the beach and trying to kick him in the nuts quite a few times, and just the way that that fight is choreographed really reminded me of Armor of God. And then I could see some of that stuff, and I think I even saw posters for some of the Hong Kong action films in some of the Harry Knuckles films and i guess we should talk a little harry knuckles here harry knuckles is another character that phil caracas plays written by ian driscoll and directed by lee denbar again and there were let's say three films that harry was in the first one was a short film that is pretty much just all action scenes but kind of introduces you to the harry character and i Really, really appreciate that film. Um, I love these kind of this whole idea of like a fake trailer kind of thing, and to see all of the best bits from a film just all kind of jammed together. And that's what they were kind of crafting with this was an imaginary action film that had all of these fights and all these stunts and all this kind of stuff. And it was really, for me, it was really well put together. 
And then there were two, well, there was a 30-minute film, Harry Knuckles versus the Aztec Mummy. And then there was Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. And then they returned to the Harry Knuckles character with Harry Knuckles um, and the Pearl Necklace. Um, so that was fun to see. That one goes on for a little long. It's about two hours, and they really kind of throw everything in the kitchen sink in there. But for me, a lot of the stuff really, really works. Um, we have the return of Santos in there. We've got a Bigfoot monster. And we have uh, the the Piper character, who's only in there for about five minutes. But I think he might be one of my favorite characters in the film. Yeah, the Harry Knuckles stuff is pretty fun. But I do have to agree with you with the last one. It goes on a bit much. I feel it probably needs about another 20 minutes taken out it just it, it's a tad too long the fight scenes go on a bit too much for me but overall the the other ones are really good like i like the aztec one which is what half hour something like that mm-hmm. and i i just think that they're really creative and they play in the same field as uh, jesus christ vampire hunter so if you've seen jesus christ vampire hunter then you should really try to check out the other ones because you get a same kind of attitude uh, throughout all of these films. Yeah, and I know that Pearl Necklace is available on DVD out there and fairly easy to find. I don't know about The Treasure of the Aztec Mummy or the original short, but yeah, definitely take a look for those, and if you can find them, watch them, because they have this really nice aesthetic to them. It has that same low-budget aesthetic that we're talking about with Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter that you know, overdubbing and all this kind of stuff. And there are lines in there that still crack me up. And I think one of my favorite things is when Harry is uh, eating a banana and being talked to by some that guy who's trying to get him to, you know, join him and, and do a job for him or whatever. And Harry takes the banana and shakes it at him and says, you have this long. The other thing too, is if you're a trauma fan and you like little cameos from Lloyd Kaufman, Lloyd's in that one as well. I thought that would make you happy, Rob. So there you go. And for some inexplicable reason, he's wearing a sombrero. But anyway, that's uh, that's our man. So there you go. And spitting out change. <laughs> and doing a lot of drinking. And I like later on when <laughs> when, Santa, when Harry can't find somebody and Santos is like, oh, well, you can go back and see the man with the hat. And he's just like, yeah, no, I'm not going to. And I love his, his cheesy Spanish accent. Yeah, yeah, it's quite good. I like how Harry has more of a Spanish accent than Santo does. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews, first with director Lee DeMarm and second with screenwriter Ian Driscoll after these messages. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count podcast. Okay. What about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Hittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks, Joel M. Reed? Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast. Every week in High Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with 
the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Aris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. One dark and stormy night in the mid '80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios! Life is so busy. From my job to my family and all the things in between, sometimes you need to make a little time for yourself. And I found something nice to make those times oh so sweet. It's Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women, men, and couples. And if you're new to all this, they have plenty of helpful suggestions and information to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has taken your privacy seriously. Go to the site and read all about it. And right now, when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order from Vibrators.com's huge catalog. That's Vibrators.com. Do something nice for you. I've been a fan of your work ever since way back when with the Harry Knuckles films. How did you get into making movies, and how did the first Harry Knuckles short come to be? Well, I made movies in high school. I mean, but they weren't really movies. They were videos. Well, sorry. I lived in Newfoundland. I had a paper route. And when I moved to Ottawa, came here in grade eight, and I wanted to have my own camera, my own video camera. So I went to work at a Chinese restaurant run by the Italian mob here in Ottawa. These guys used to run prostitutes out of the kitchen. And I was like the dishwasher, so I would get really chummy with these girls. But it was kind of scary. I remember the owner used to beat one of the waitresses, like this beautiful girl, and he used to beat her up. And it was just like a sad, kind of got sad and depressing working there. As soon as I afforded the money to buy my video camera, I quit. 
also there was a big fight in one day and then the two chinese cooks and one chinese cook cut the fingers off another chinese cook like, that really happened and so i i quit you know i forwarded my video camera and got out i remember in grade eight i mean i'm talking about 1986 here not a lot of teenagers had video cameras and i was sort of one of only two people in the whole school who had one people would often ask me to do video projects with them i i um, not only did i get out of writing essays you know, I got to present video projects instead of essays. And I was like, so I feel like I pioneered that. I remember like I would present stuff in school on videotape and, and now kids do that all the time with digital. But, um, I would also help out other students and, but I also, you know, shot narrative movies, mostly comedies with my friends. And I had recently digitized everything and found about 88 short films I made in high school. Uh, then I went to Carleton university film studies. I should say, you know, we used to distribute our movies. I used to work at a video store, and they were run by nice people and they didn't work for the mob. When I worked for the video store and I was making my short films, I used to distribute my films. I don't know if you remember VHS tape, but they used to have a tab on the side. And if you broke the tab, you couldn't tape anything on the tape. So if you rented like a new – if you rented a movie from the video store, you couldn't actually tape anything on the cassette because they didn't want you to tape over the movie you were renting. But if you put a piece of tape on the tab, you could tape over something. What I used to do is I used to put my short films at the end of movies. So we'd fast forward. We'd take a new release that was really popular. We'd fast forward at the end, after the end credits. And we'd put a tape, piece of tape on the tab and, and put our short films at the end of movies. So when I was at school and I wanted to recommend a movie to, to people, this is before YouTube, if I wanted people to see my movies, I'd tell them to go rent Manhunter at West Coast Video and fast forward to the end credits and or read Lethal Weapon 2 and you know and that's how we got our films out there and then one day we, we made a film called The Hacker which is about 40 minutes and we spent the whole summer making it and I remember my camera didn't have flying erase heads so when we shot our movies we had to shoot and edit as we went along so when we did a dialogue sequence you literally had to pan the camera between takes and we had to edit as we were going along you know what I mean my friend got a Spent some more money. His dad bought it for him. A really nice camera with flying erase heads. So then we could finally edit picture properly. And so we made this film called The Hacker. And we actually got it into local video stores in Ottawa. And it was fun. But, you know, I went to Carleton University Film Studies after high school. Four years. And I didn't pick up a camera once. I, my video camera became a paperweight. And I studied cinema. And it was all theory. It was all, you know, national cinema you know, Canadian cinema, international cinema, and I fell in love with lots of different genres of film. You know, before Carleton, before Film Studies program, I was only in love with Hollywood movies. I only knew Hollywood movies. I didn't know Canadian cinema at all. But there was a lot of discoveries I made in, in university, which included the, the Hong Kong action film. Not because I learned that in university, actually, because we had to go through Chinatown on my bus, and I used to always get off at Chinatown and rent Jackie Chan movies or John Woo movies and I'd go through shoe boxes you know in the kitchen because the Asian community only cares about new releases so older movies and I'm not I'm talk, talking about movies that are 20 30 years old I'm talking about movies the last you know released 2 weeks ago would be put in shoe boxes and if you wanted to find an old cool Jackie Chan movie or an old cool Chow Young Fat movie you had to go dig and I dug and I used to love finding gems but also you know I I, I you know I discovered you know the films of Betty Page at Carleton University, which was which which I really like, and and uh, Mexican wrestling movies, and you know my mind was open. Black exploitation films, my mind was open. So when it came to making my first film, when I graduated Carleton, and then I went to the Independent Filmmakers Co-op of Ottawa, and I discovered my love for celluloid. 
I discovered that, oh, that's the difference. That's why my movies I shot on VHS didn't look like movies because they were shot on video. When I discovered the power of the, the image on, you know, in 60 millimeter, then I, I felt like I was making my first movie, which was Harry Knuckles. And when I came, when I came to making my first movie, I thought I wanted to make like just a Kung Fu movie, but it ended up being like a Mexican wrestling, a Kung Fu horror musical. You know, it, my films sort of became melting pots of all those different things I fell in love with in university. Harry Knuckles came out of, came, you know, I graduated, I graduated film studies and, you know, and I started shooting that movie within weeks of graduating. But it took me two years to finish that movie. It took me two years to finish a five-minute short film on 16mm because I didn't have a lot of money. But because I was shooting a trailer for a non-existent feature-length film, and this is years before Grindhouse, I decided to make a trailer for a movie, an action movie I didn't have the money to make. So well, let's just shoot the trailer. But every weekend I shot action scenes and action scenes, and I put together as action scenes. And then for the trailer, I took them apart to make a trailer. So I was hungry to make a narrative action film after Harry Knuckles. And Harry Knuckles played in every major city in Canada. We had it, we shot and finished it on 16mm, so we were able to screen it at real film festivals and stuff in cities. So I said, okay, I'm not even going to make a narrative film. So I spent about 11 months making a 25-minute narrative film called Harry Knuckles and the Treasure of the Aztec Mummy. And that film... Uh, we got into all the same cities. We got into all the same cinemas, played everywhere. And then I thought, I remember I was working in a cinema, the Bytown Cinema in Ottawa, and there was a poster in the mar- the poster up for a movie called Six String Samurai. On that poster, it said "Winner Slam Dance Film Festival," and I'm like, huh. I should find out about Slam Dance and maybe submit my film out. I never even thought of sending it anywhere outside of Canada. So we sent we sent to the Slam Dance and we got accepted and we went to we went there and that really opened my eyes. I mean, we went to Slam Dance and we we got to meet all these filmmakers and saw all these great films and we won the Spirit Award. You know, we won this big prize. You know, Spirit Award is the uh, award they they give to a filmmaker. You know, all the filmmakers have their film in vote for their favorite movie and somehow our movie won you know that was a big deal in canada we got a national television and i and i uh, and that gave me the kick in the ass to make a feature-length film so as soon as we got back from slandman's i spent two years shooting a, a my first feature-length film on 16 millimeter you know the, the same amount of time it took me to finish a five-minute movie it took me to finish a feature film and that was jesus christ vampire hunter how did you and phil caracas meet well, I mentioned I worked at the Bytown Cinema, and he was my boss. You know, he's still the manager at the Bytown. I saw him there later last night, and I still see Phil all the time. But yeah, Phil, I met at the Bytown Cinema, and he's you know he's a funny, cool dude, and he was a, an adult too. I mean, I was an adult, I guess. I was I just graduated in university, but he was like a real adult. You know, like <laughs> he smoked, he had a Jeep, he had his own house. You know, and I thought. It, It'd be fun to work with an adult on a movie. You know, I often made these high school movies with my friends, and I always had kids in my movies. And uh, I was growing up now, so I'm going to make this film. I thought Phil had a great face. I thought he would be very photogenic and very funny. And so I asked Phil, "Do you want to be in my Harry Knuckles movie?" And we, you know, he was shooting with him, and he, he's just nuts. He's just a lot of fun to work with, but he, you know, he he doesn't need to have funny lines to be funny. He's just there's something very funny and charismatic about his performance in all those movies. And we're hoping to work together together again very soon. You know, I see I saw him get three times this week, and um, 
you know, I still see him. So he, I guess he's my leading man guy. You know, I've made so many films since, and I haven't had a chance to work with Harry and, uh, with Phil in a while, but I can't wait to do it again. Phil is always there in these early films, and so is El Santo. What is it about El Santo that appeals to you? Toronto has this channel. I think it's Channel 15. It's City Television. It was back in the 90s. I was up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and this film came on. I didn't know what the hell it was, and I thought I was pretty versed in you know, exploitation films. And I felt, I felt I was pretty versed in a lot of strange knowledge about strange movies. I really didn't think there was anything left for me to be surprised by or inspired by. And in the middle of the night on city TV and channel 15, Santo versus Dr. Death was playing. And it just captured my imagination. You know, Lucha Libre, this max Mexican wrestler named El Santo was, basically playing a James Bond-type character. He had the Aston Martin James Bond car, but he would like go to, uh, to, on airplanes. He would be in the shopping center. He'd be walking on the street driving his car. He never took his mask off. And I just, like, I just thought it was fascinating. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I was a fan of wrestling at one point in my life, but it wasn't Mexican wrestling, and it was only one summer, and it was Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And, and you know, So years later, I discovered Lucha Libre, and not being a fan of Lucha Libre, but being a, becoming a fan of the movies that Santo was in. So after I seeing Santo over Dr. Dill, I wanted to know, is there more Santo movies? And I found out there's you know, hundreds, or not hundreds, but dozens of movies. He made Batman-style action films. He made the James Bond-style that inspired action films. His friend Blue Demon made movies. And there was just tons. And they were, they were hard to get back then, but I would find them. I would email, you know, I would... Not there was before email or internet. I was I, I would have to order away in catalogs and stuff. And uh, I still, I mean, every time I go to Mexico, I try to bring back some Santa movies. I've got a shit ton of Santa movies on DVD here at home and on VHS, but I don't have them all because there were so many, and so many probably will never see the light of day. But that night, um, seeing Santa's performance and seeing him in that movie, I just thought, God, you know, if they made an American movie like this, I, th- I thought it would be like tremendous it would have a tremendous appeal and when it came to give it you know and i showed phil these movies and he loved them and we watched them all and we watched the black old black and white ones i really like the color ones there's something about color that really captured the that era the 70s era you know um disco and and santo's got that kind of stuff the santo's got a really funky vibe it, it reminded me of what i liked about black exploitation cinema but you know with these mass mass wrestlers and you know and I would be able, you know, one day I would be able to go to Mexico and make two movies and, and be in the ring with Lucha Libre, Luchadores, and meet the son, the grandson of El Santo. And, and you know, who knew back then? But when it came to coming up with a, a, a sidekick for, for, for Harry Knuckles and then Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, you know, Phil and I quickly thought of Santo. We added an S to our Santo, so it's Santos. Jeff Moffat tries to portray a, a, a character of Santo as if, as if he was retired and living the life, you know. You know, not as a wrestler anymore, but as a, you know, what what would Santo be doing after he retired? Maybe he'd running a chartered board, boat service or, <laughs> you know, all these things that we have in the movie. That was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun working with Jeff Moffat playing that character. It was always fun. And I think Ian had a really good time writing the character. Your early stuff has this very interesting style, especially the whole use of the post-sync dialogue. Was that more for an effect that you're going for or more because of budgetary constraints? It's funny. I get, I get my, I know, you know what it's all about, but it's funny when you talk to people who don't understand the difference between film and video and what they, 
their perceptions of the movie is. I shot Harry Knuckles, Harry Knuckles and Treasure of the Aztec Mummy, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, and Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace, which is a two-hour Harry Knuckles adventure, which we haven't talked about. I shot all those movies entirely on a 16-millimeter Bolex camera, which is a really tiny little camera. I loved it because I could shoot fast. I could shoot from the hip. I could get into impossible – I can get impossible angles. You know, I had three prime lenses. I was out the door running. I didn't have to plug it in. You know, it's like I, I could shoot anywhere at any time and not have to ask permission to shoot. Those are guerrilla movies. And, but the camera's loud. The camera makes a lot of noise, and you can't shoot sync sound audio with it because it's such a loud camera. You can literally hear it going, running. And when you're shooting slow motion, I did shoot a lot of slow motion in those movies, you could really hear it go. So shooting sound was never an option. And it let us also not having a the boom everything, we got to move really fast. So we got a lot of setups during a day, a lot of different camera angles, a lot done. You know, we still shot two over two years, but the days we shot, we got a lot in. And uh, you know, I the only my only option was to do post sync. And like and some of it happened over a year later. And some of it, you know, when the actors come back in the studio, they don't realize they didn't say the dialogue exactly like the way they, they did when they were on set. Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace, we do a little bit better of a job. Ian was always there, and he was always careful that if they said anything different from a script, he'd write it into a script and retype it. So when it came a year later, everyone could nail their dialogue. So Pearl Necklace kind of worked a little better than the other ones. But also the films that inspired this movie, they were all dubbed. You know, the Santa movies, when I first saw Dr. Death, it was dubbed in English. And you know, and the, and the, the, the Italians, and I, there were so many Italian movies that were inspiring what we were doing. All that stuff is... Um, you know, post sync, they shoot without a, they shoot MOS and they, you know, like the Sergio Leone from the Sergio Leone films to Jess Franco to Joe D'Amato to, or, you know, to Ruggiero Diodato to Roberto Lenzi to Mario Bava. I mean, no one in Italy was shooting or in a lot of Europe was shooting with sync sound until, uh, you know, I remember Fred Williams, I met Fred Williamson and he told me, yeah, Lee, I had to show the Italians how to shoot sync sound. And I'm like, oh, so you ruined Italian cinema. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> the Italians bought a book, got a boom mic on set. The camera was locked down, and the the movies lose their visual flair. But they're so interesting to look at because those guys are gunning, they're moving, they're jumping around, and you know they're not shooting sound, and and uh, you know it slows you down doing the sound, sync sound stuff. It's a little easier now probably than it was. And also the Hong Kong action movies. I was you know Jackie Chan has always been a big inspiration, and 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 Sammo Hung in particular, and all those movies were. None of those movies were sync sound. I'm not even talking about the dub movies. I'm talking about the actual Chinese dialect. They weren't shooting sync sound. Um, so it didn't bother me to be able to shoot this movie out of Bolex. It's like, I'll just post up and I'll just make it like an Italian or Hong Kong or Mexican action movie. We took so long to film, sometimes actors would come in. You know, they don't even remember what they shot anymore. Or, or, uh, and they're not even, you know, some of them are not even actors. But everyone had a good time, I, and some actors weren't available anymore. And I'd have to, I'd have to put in the voice, or my wife would have to put in the voice. That's what those movies are. <laughs> MOS Canadian action films. Yeah, I really noticed a lot of Jackie Chan watching those. I don't know if it's just my exposure to it, but some of the fights, like with um, in Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, with the women on the beach, I was really reminded of those Amazons from. Yes. But- from Armor of God. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's that's what I was going for. I mean, when I was in university and I was thinking about the kind of movie I wanted to make, I, I, my first thought was I'd love to try to appropriate 
appropriate the Hong Kong action style, particularly the ones in the Jackie Chan movies and the Sammo Hung movies, in a Canadian film, action film context. Now they do it all the time. Now you know the, with the Matrix movies and Kill Bill, you know it's it's kind of superfluous to try to do that. But when I was you know in the late nineties, no one it was before you know before Rumble in the Bronx, no one knew what Jackie Chan was in America, and Jackie Chan does have a very particular way the way he shoots and edits his action movies. Like I'm not, I love martial arts filmmaking, but I'm not a fan of martial arts. I'm you know I've never practice martial arts i don't have any aspirations to be a martial artist but jackie chan's one of my favorite filmmakers and what he is my favorite entertainer and sama hung taught jackie everything he knows and jack and samo keeps reinventing himself and samo is the guy to keep an eye on the way he shoots and talks about the way he shoots and like the camera's the third arm and the fight and and uh, you know, and the continuity flow is so impressive. When I watch it, and when you compare that to a lot of the ac- American films being made at the time, there's no comparison. I mean, the Americans just don't know how to cover action, and nothing impresses me more. Nothing impresses me more than watching some of those fight scenes, especially the fight scenes that Jackie Chan was shooting and editing in the '80s, the, the, the mid mid to the late '80s, and somehow that, that to me that's the heyday. Everyone talks about Shaw Brothers. It's like fuck the Shaw Brothers. Bruce Lee is just a martial artist. He's not a filmmaker. In the 80s, you know, when Jackie Chan made The Young Master, he stopped filming. He studied cinema, and six months later, they, they went back to production. And you can see the birth of the modern-day action movie halfway through that movie. For 15 years, his films were incredible. Actually, I still like some of his – I still like a lot of the action scenes in Chinese Zodiac, and I still like a lot of the action scenes in New Police Story. Yeah, but but I miss Sam Hung's a director. He stopped directing, which is a shame. And uh, But his movie, Pedicab Driver, is just – Unbelievable! I kept looking at Pedicab Driver, and I kept watching the, the, the especially the fight scene at the end with Billy Chow, who's who's Canadian. I would pause it and I would step frame it and would just look at his shots and the way he used close ups. And you know, sometimes the Americans get too close with their camera, but Samo has a way of getting close, getting in there, and 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 each cut serves the continuity, and it's thrilling to me. It's not, these movies are on fire when I watch them. I get so thrilled watching them. And uh, I haven't been thrilled in a long time watching an action movie, but particularly anything made by a Caucasian. But when Sammo Hung was directing, when Jackie Chan's directing, wow, look out! I'm, uh, you know, that's that's my cup of tea, and that's what I tried to capture a little bit. I never, I didn't come close to any of that stuff, but we tried. You know, we tried, especially in Pearl Necklace. There's a fight where Harry Knuckles fights himself, and I did storyboard it like. Um, like you know try to do oh and the aztec mummy fight when harry knuckles actually fights the aztec mummy it's like a 20 second action scene but i kind of liked the way that turned out i thought that reminded me of what samuel would have done if he shot that scene you know but nowhere nowhere near as good but we tried and we tried to make a mexican wrestling movie we tried to make an american musical we tried to do all these things in our little movie called harry knuckles or jesus christ vampire hunter all mls how did you and ian driscoll hook up I bonded with Ian through Herschel Gordon Lewis. I remember I would go to parties and I would always bring, I love Florida filmmaking in the, in the fifties and sixties. And, uh, especially, you know, all the, the, the trashier, the, the, the more exploitative, the better, you know, not just Herschel Gordon Lewis, but you know, Doris Wishman too. And I would bring these movies over to uh, a party. You know, if they were, if we were at a party, I'd, I'd bring them and I put them on in the background. And Ian really responded to them. I remember. And Ian and I would always have a good time watching them. And when I, when I after I made Harry Knuckles, someone, and I was going to make a Harry Knuckles feature, no, sorry, a short narrative film, which was Aztec Mummy. Someone, a woman said, you should ask Ian to write it because Ian's in first year university or he's got his master's in English now and should ask him to write it. And I don't think even Ian pictured himself writing screenplays. 
but we we really bonded with Hershey Gordon Lewis in particular films like The Wizard of Gore and The Gore Girls, and we you know and you know the and the get the chance to work with Ray Sager and Hershey Gordon Lewis on Smash Cut was a dream come true for both of us. But you know you know Hershey Gordon Lewis is the obvious re, you know reason to be really uh, ecstatic, but you know the fact that we made a movie with the original Wizard of Gore Ray Sager like to me I'm I still freak out about that I, I freak out a little bit by that idea. But Ian, Ian – so Ian, I said, yeah, let, Ian, would you, would you – and he wrote it pretty quick. He wrote Aztec Moving pretty good. I asked him to write it. He wrote it pretty quick and I was really happy with it and we, we just shot what he wrote. And, um, and you know, that's one of my best films I think. I, I love that movie. I can show my kids that movie. Um, <laughs> and I have a print of it. You know, how cool is that? You know, how many filmmakers today can say they have a, you know, a print of their movies? You know, people don't even have Blu-rays anymore. People, you know, filmmakers ten years from now will be lucky to have anything art, you know, that they can put in their hand that they can call art. You know, I've got VHSs, sixty millimeter prints, DVDs, Blu-rays, but my next film or the film after that might not ever be out on any format that I can actually hold in my hand, which is sad it saddens me. You know, I'm gonna have to spend money to have it released on VHS or something. <laughs> what was the genesis of Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter? How did that come about? I was cutting Harry Knuckles and the Treasure of the Aztec Mummy. I was cutting it on 60mm. We cut it on film on a Steenbeck that I was renting from IFCO, and I was spending a lot of money. I thought, geez, I'd love to just have one of these at home. I would get this movie done so much quicker. And someone told me that John N. Smith at the NFB was selling his machine. Now, John N. Smith had recently directed Michelle Pfeiffer in The Dangerous Game with Coolio, I believe. Uh, or Coolio at least did the song, but Michelle Pfeiffer. And, and so, he, you know, he he got to Hollywood, so he didn't need his machine anymore. So I bought it for about $1,500. And uh, Ian and I went to go to Toronto in a rental van, and we brought it back. And on the trip, Ian, we were listening, I remember we were listening to a lot of Michael Jackson on audio tape somehow, some reason. <laughs> I still like Michael Jackson, his music anyway. But Ian said the four words together. He didn't even say it in the context of a movie. He just said, Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter. And we laughed about it so much. And it quite literally is the movie that was born out of the title. Imagine you're given a title for a movie, you had to make a movie. And that's, that's what happened. He said those four words. I said, holy shit, that would be a great film. And by the time we got back, you know, Toronto's a five-hour drive there, five-hour drive back. And by the time we got back to Ottawa... We had cooked up the, basically the whole story, and Ian spent some time, wrote it all. That one became what it became. I mean, that turned out really well. I mean, it, 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 it was a good success for us. Did people have trouble with you uh, lampooning Jesus? When we were filming, yes. When it came out, not so much. I thought, I thought for sure we'd get people upset. I thought the lesbians would be angry with me, and the Catholics. And the lesbians love it uh, more than anyone. We went to the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival in San Francisco. I mean, that was a really hoot. A real hoot. We showed the film at the Castro Theater, you know, on sixty millimeter. It was a dream come true. But it turned out the Catholics liked it too. When we released the movie, we had a we had a screening at the the, the, the Theologian Conference in Toronto. Like every, you know, every year they pick a city. It's like the Olympics. They pick a city every year to the mer- you know all the theologians in, in in the world merge, and they decided to screen Jesus Christ Vampire. It was one of the biggest audiences that we've ever had. People loved it. And I met this one young woman who wrote her thesis paper on the movie. But while we were filming it, there were a few issues. I remember we, we wanted to shoot outside of a church. The scene with uh, Father Alban and Father Eustace, and we found this really nice church. I want to film on the stairs and. Um, 
of the church and the uh, priest came outside and, and they said, what are you doing? I said, well, do you, you mind if we just shoot a scene here from our, our movie? And he said, well, what's, what's the movie called? And I said, Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter. And he, he invited us into his office and sat us down and talked about how, how offensive it, it could be because that Jesus was a, r- a real man and, and that vampires were a work of fiction. And he was afraid that the movie would make Jesus seem like fictitious. And he was nice about it, uh, but you know it was it was fine. I, I just wanted to shoot on this church step, so so we didn't end up shooting there. So we had to go somewhere else. And I just remember people were a little upset by seeing priests, especially Glenn in the mo- with a mohawk and the priest outfit. I mean, people were taking pictures. Like, that caused a bit of a commotion. You know, people didn't want to be in it from time to time because of what was going on, but. Uh, at the same time, people who were in it had a lot of fun, and 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 especially the gays and lesbians really reacted, responded well to the movie. So, but, but I, I thought when the movie came out, people would be throwing eggs at this thing. And, you know, you read stories about how you know Life of Brian opened and the way Last Temptation of Christ opened. I was I was kind of hoping for some bad publicity that we didn't get. Yeah, I really liked Father Alban. I was kind of sad that he was only in there for a little bit, but his character is so good. Yeah, I agree. I, I, yeah, I wish he was in the movie more. When we do the sequel, we'll have to bring him back, resurrect him or something. Or at least get another punk in a, <laughs> in a priest outfit because people talk about that, especially the scene he's on the motorcycle and he's got the motorcycle helmet and his fan is cut through it. I still have that motorcycle helmet, and I, I should sell it on eBay someday. So you had no problems with the Catholics or, or the, the gays. How about the atheists? They don't care. <laughs> no one gave us any shit about this movie. I can't think of. I mean, people hate it. People don't like the fact. A lot of people who are, a lot of people are get excited about hearing the title one and see that movie. And if you watch nothing but mainstream movies all the time, I can understand why you wouldn't like this movie. It's like you, you wouldn't understand what you're looking at. It's like really low budget, but not. I mean, we shot on sixteen millimeter. People think it's shot on crummy VHS. And, and, you know, people think it's just shit. And I get it. People are also disappointed by the fact that Jesus gets a haircut so early in the movie and gets his beard shaved off and all that stuff. And I get that, too. I mean, I, we did that on purpose because we thought Jesus wore sandals and had long hair and a beard and a mustache because that's what everyone was dressed like 2,100 years ago, whatever it was. And we thought it would be fun to have Jesus – assimilate you know become more you know try to fit in more it makes sense to me if the second coming came he wouldn't be wearing sandals and wouldn't have long hair he'd look like phil probably but with jesus too we realize i mean that's what everyone if people hate the movie for one thing that's it so when we make jesus too if we get to it uh i think we're gonna keep him in his long with his long he's gonna go back he's gonna go back to the long hair and the beard because you know people didn't know how to respond to jesus the audiences so we're gonna, and that'll be a part of the next film, and you can go back to that image that oh, people will people will only follow Jesus if he looks like Jesus from what they know in paintings and in books. <clears throat> if you try anything differently, it's not gonna you know it's not gonna he's not gonna be followed. So that's part of what the sequel is gonna be about, which is kind of fun. I, I figured it would just be way too hot for Phil in that wig and and beard. That was another thing too. We shot the movie for two years, and Phil didn't want to have his beard on for two years and he didn't want to have to grow his hair. The wig was nice. We, but he made, we, that's probably the most money we spent on the movie is that wig. 
Jesus, yeah, that was another reason. It's like, okay, Phil, how about we just shave your beard? We'll write in the story. But I mean, the real reason was that we wanted him to do a cinema. cinema. The other thing is, Phil always had his earrings in, and he and we and Harry Knuckles, we kept fucking up the continuity. We'd forget to take his earrings in or out, so it was easy to just get him pierced and have him have earrings all the time. <laughs> Why the decision to add the musical numbers in there? I thought a musical number would be fun. I mean, I, I love. Uh, you know some early American musicals like I really like On the Town with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra, and I thought I really loved that, especially the opening number. You know, the um, I Love New York montage. I wanted to create something like that. I also like you know West Side Story, and and I wanted I wanted to try try something like that. I I, I have my problems with the musical numbers, like probably my least favorite thing in the movie. It's the big one anyway, and it's all, mostly all my fault. I thought that it would be good to have very little singing and lots of dancing, and I realized it should have been the other way around. It should have been more singing and less dancing. So in Jesus too, we'll probably do a song that's more, probably the opposite of what happens to Jesus. But I mean that's part of it. You know, we made a kung fu horror comedy musical about the second coming. You know, it was just one more layer to add to the cake. What was it like uh, getting the the extras and all the people in those musical numbers? When we were shooting, we, I got a lot of press for getting extras. The media seemed to respond. At the time, no one was making movies in Ottawa. It was kind of cool and special that someone was. We put a we put a thing in the paper, and a lot of people came out, and uh, just everyone who came out got in the movie. Uh, we we had one meeting. We set a date. Everyone agreed to the date. Woke up that morning. It was raining. So I called everyone, called everyone. They'll have to do it next Saturday or whatever it was. And everyone just showed up. And we had one, we had Ken Godmere, who was our dance choreographer. And he went out there and made sure everyone got in the movie. And that's probably why the scene's so long, because everyone who showed up got in the movie. And, you know, I wasn't paying anyone, so I felt so bad if they showed up and they helped us make the movie. If they weren't in the movie, they would hate me forever. So I put everyone, everyone's numbers in the movie. I mean, I have a few outtakes. But if you're if, the, if there's an outtake, you're at least in another scene. So everyone got in the everyone got their close up. So you talked about some of the screenings of Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Where else did it play? How was it received? Did you do the whole festival thing with that as well? Yeah, we went to the Cannes Film Festival, showed in the market there. We showed Harry Knuckles and the Treasure of the Aztec Mummy at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles, which was awesome on sixteen millimeter. Uh, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter still plays everywhere. It still plays in Israel. Like Easter, uh, you know, around Christmas, always, you know, played in, played in Baltimore a lot. It's really big in Australia in the bootleg market, <laughs> and in Mexico, it's huge in Mexico. Everyone's got a bootleg copy. I went to, we went, we got invited by the University of Mexico City to show the movie there, and everyone had a DVD uh, for me to sign, and I'm like, or VHS at the time, and I was like, this movie's never been released in Mexico, and everyone had a bootleg of it with with artwork and everything included. Like, it, it, I don't know how it just got bootleg big time in Mexico. Yeah, we. I mean, once I think it won. F- four film festival awards and it screened a lot I remember we were in Washington D.C. during that whole 90s uh, sniper incident which was weird yeah you should see my film cans I've got all these cool stickers on them yeah, the Hebrew is really cool <laughs> next to the Chinese and stuff yeah no it, it um, and it still plays I still get requests I just you know sold it in Germany again and you know it's 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 alive that movie's alive it's the biggest – the company released in the United States, it's their biggest DVD release. So how did you decide to kind of go back to Harry Knuckles with the next one with the pearl necklace? 
Yeah, that's probably a mistake. I mean, it really is a sequel to Jesus. I mean, if, if I should just call it Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter Two. I mean, I, I I thought there was a I thought I made a go at. It. I thought people would be so in love with Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter and Phil Caracas, they would just go see anything we released next. And it was you know no one did. I mean, it was, it was a big hit in Ottawa, but it didn't it didn't perform at all. It was a big dud. It was my first big mistake. I think uh, we spent. You know, two years making it, I spent a lot of money making it. Finish. I do love how it looks and sounds. Like it turned out really well. It's like if Jesus looked that good and sounded that good, I think we would have probably had a bigger hit on our hands. It, it's a very polished film. It's too long. It's two hours. I could easily cut thirty minutes out of the movie and should someday. It is what it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. It's, it's two hours of nonsense. Anyway, I love it watching it with Phil and think you know lots of great memories of it, fond memories. Love love working with all the actors. But I will say the best thing that came out of Harry Nichols and the Pearl Necklace. No one saw that movie, but Sasha Gray saw it and she loved it. And that's why that's how I got her into, into Smash Cut. I mean, she loves that movie. She listens to the soundtrack all the time still and texts me about it. So if it wasn't for Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace, I probably wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have been working with Sasha Grand Smash Cut, which turned out to be positive thinking. Yeah, you kind of went in a different direction after that uh, last Harry Knuckles film. You know, did you see Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace as this misstep? So you wanted to branch out from that and not go back to the Harry kind of stuff. No, or? it wasn't. It wasn't. I don't think it was me. It definitely wasn't. I didn't. I decide. I didn't decide to shoot on digital video because. Of the failure of Harry Knuckles, I decided that's the industry went that way. I mean, I, I was such a snob when I was shooting on film, and I shot two feature films on a sixty millimeter Bolex. I was such a snob to video. I think my films are about that at some point or another. Smash cuts about that. Uh, but I went after Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace. I got approached by a producer in Ottawa named Rob Menzies, and he wanted me to go to Mexico and make. A, a, a film down there, and he asked me what would I like to do in Mexico, and I thought, well, I'd love to do a black exploitation action films, you know, in, you know, in big action movie inspired by black exploitation cinema in in Jamaica, and we got Fred Williamson on board. And we're going to make this movie, and it all fell apart. By that point, like I wasted a year or more. When I by the time I got to shoot my next feature film, it was a documentary, and in the middle of that, we made this feature film in Mexico. And at that point, it's like, if you're going to make a small budget movie, you're not going to shoot on film. You know, it was getting hard. When I made Pearl Necklace, it was it was probably, it probably is the last feature length film finished on 16 millimeter in Canada. I mean, people still shoot on 16 millimeter, but, um, oh, sorry, did that cut on Harry Knuckles in Church of the Aztec Mummy passed away? No, the one who did, sorry, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter passed away. I, it was hard to find anyone to do to cut negative or shoot optical soundtrack for this movie. And as far as I know, Hair Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace is the last feature-length film in Canada to be finished to 60mm film. <clears throat> I remember Jason X, the, the 10th Jason movie, your Friday 13th film, was being finished at the same time. And uh, that that's around that era where everything was moving to, to, to digital technology. They were color-timing digitally now. And 60mm was... It was also... 60mm cinemas, like, no one had 60mm projectors anymore. So, you know, no one was... Um, it was hard to get the film shown anywhere on 60mm. Everyone was like, can we just show the DVD? You know, I spent... I remember I spent $12,000 on my neg cut for Hair and Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace. And I spent another $10,000 on, on, on the, the optical soundtrack. I spent close to $25,000 finishing it the film... The money I have left over, I spent about two hundred dollars finishing it 
to VHS or DVD, and that's what everyone wanted to show, which was also very disappointing. So the further I got away from Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace, it just you know it was more and more unlikely that I'd be shooting on sixteen millimeter. But now there's this production house in Toronto that allow me to shoot on sixteen millimeter, and instead of getting processing the sixteen millimeter back as sixteen millimeter stock, I would get HD files I could cut on, and that's what I want to shoot Jesus too on. I want to shoot it on sixteen millimeter, but cut it on you know HD digital video uh, but at least shoot it on 16 and get that feel again they get that look that everyone loves and doesn't understand so what have you been up to lately what uh, is um jesus 2 happening pretty soon or, or what's going on ian driscoll told me to have a script for me before the snow uh, melted i mean there was a bunch of ideas there was a prequel idea there was a sequel idea there was a remake of people i got approached by three or four different production companies that wanted me to re- remake it they wanted to buy their rights, and I and I said, well, as long as I'm directing and Phil's the star, let's do it. And that's when I, the conversation was over. But our movie, I think we're just going to simply – it's simply called Jesus 2 at this point because I kind of like that title. <laughs> Will it be T-O-O? No, that's, that's, that's way too in the 80s. <laughs> that's way too Teen Wolf and uh, – what was the other one? There was Teen Wolf 2 and uh, – uh, what was the other one? I think of Mark Herman. No. Anyway, uh, I get it. I was thinking, thinking of Jesus Two Electric Boogaloo at one point, but um, yeah, no, I really like. Uh, we we have a treatment, and I really like I really like what the movie's about. It's a you know, it's a little bit bigger. It involves time travel, and uh, yeah, it's got a lot of really great ideas. And uh, if we can pull it off, it's gonna be really 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 cool. And Phil still looks great. Phil still looks like he did uh, twelve years ago when we released that movie. Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, I'd love to shoot it this summer if I could. I've got a, I've got, I've got another film I'm shooting in April called um, "Bring Me the Five Heads of the Diodato Family," which is, involves a, a prostitute who has uh, one night to decapitate the heads of five uh, gang members in, in in the nation's capital. It's it's a it's like a sexy horror film, and I'm, I'm you know I'm just I'm trying to get uh, I'm trying to get in bed with a couple of companies. I'm trying to do about two or three movies before the end of the year in Ottawa, you know, and, sh- you know, shooting them digitally because that's, you know, no one wants to hear about it anymore. Uh, although Jesus too, uh, I'm going to, you know, I want to shoot that on 16 millimeter. So I don't know if my, that style, those movies went away because I made a decision not to shoot in that style anymore. It's just technology caught up to me, you know, and I actually feel, I feel a little out of, touch with a lot of new digital technology to tell you the truth you know i still have my i got my 60 millimeter steam back set up in my basement here i'm looking at i can go turn it on and watch jesus christ if i want to right now my last three films i shot on a red camera which at the time was the most sophisticated digital video camera in the world we dropped it in the toilet during smash cut and called it the brown i haven't shot anything on digital that wasn't a red since dead sleep easy so i'm excited now to shoot this new film and and get familiar with some new cameras and we're going to shoot the new one on 4k i I do still like cellulose i wish i was shooting on film i do really you know when i will put on a blu-ray i still prefer to watch something that's that's on celluloid even if i'm watching it digitally and i have a cinema i have this movie theater in ottawa and i still prefer watching my 35 millimeter prints over watching anything on blu-ray or dcp I don't mean this sound like a snob. It's just I'm not even old school. I just like, visually, it's just a lot more appealing to me. Feels like a movie. 
So, well, Harry Knuckles and the, uh, the, what was it, the Legend of the Golden Showers, will that ever happen? <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't imagine making that. I'd be out of my fucking mind to make that movie. Pearl Necklace didn't make any money. I spent a lot of money. My wife and I spent a lot of money making that movie. I love that movie. I love everyone involved in it. At the end, it says, coming soon, Harry Knuckles and the Curse of the Golden Showers or whatever it is. I would love to make the movie in some alternate universe, but I'd be out of my fucking mind making it. <laughs> you know, it's, no one's talking about Harry Knuckles. Even in Ottawa, no one's talking about Harry Knuckles anymore. You're the only one, Mike, talking about Harry Knuckles. I would love to make it. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm going to make Jesus 2. Jesus 2, maybe, you know, maybe we can make Jesus 3 someday, but... uh I can't imagine it. I would love to. I wish it was a. I wish I. I if someone, if you know, could come down and tell me that for the future and tell me that another Harry Knuckles movie. No, no, make one more because the next one will be a big hit. And then I'd do it, but it just doesn't seem logical at this point. <laughs> so, what is the current state of independent film up in Ottawa? Well, the the, the industry has come here. I mean, everyone's a filmmaker now. Everyone's got their iPhone. I mean, the best vid- digital video camera I've ever owned is my iPhone. Everyone's making film, but but the industry's here a bit more than it's ever has been. Uh, Pierre David makes two or three movies a year. The, you know, they, they shot the Jennifer Lawrence movie House at the Edge of the Street here. You know, just before she won the Oscar, they shot the Clown here. Eli Roth produced a movie called The Clown that shot here. You know, it's 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 it's, it's happening. You know, but no one's getting paid well, and <laughs> you know. Um, you know, it's like you know, like what Toronto was in the '80s, I guess. Not, not so, maybe not so busy, but uh, you know, Ottawa, Ottawa comes to life in the summer. In the winter, no one's making nothing. And you, you know, I run a movie theater, and every month or two, some filmmaker wants to show his feature-length film at the Mayfair. And I'm glad to do it, and it's fun because filmmakers spend a you know a year working on a movie. You got that's a lot of people helping you, and that's a lot of people to sell tickets. So it's always worthwhile. You know, I saw it with Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter when we showed that at the Bytown, which seated 700 people. We sold that for a whole week. Every night, the lineup was around the block. It was really exciting. With the Mayfair, has that been affected by the whole conversion to digital as well? Yeah, we almost didn't, couldn't afford a D- DCP projector. We did a, a campaign similar to um, Kickstarter with Indiegogo and raised some money and, and got a projector but it's already broken down on us once which costs us a lot of money we're out of business for four days it's nerve-wracking you know they want us to spend more money and upgrade it all the time uh it's not you know like when we when we were out of business four days because the power outlet on it went down and they had to manufacture a new part for us you know i could still show rocky her picture show on 35 millimeter i could still show the Crispin glover movies on 35 millimeter our projectors from the 40s were very reliable and never broken down on us but the brand new dcp projector had uh it was a little off-putting it's gonna be rough i mean you can't even like jerry rig something with that or you know use a paper clip for a part instead nope you can't at all yeah you can open up a projector a 35 million projector and see exactly what's wrong with it and do something about it but who knows what to do with these big monster projectors that are basically empty on the inside oh so is the whole industry yes (laughs) (laughs) yes very good
my name's Ian, Ian Driscoll, and uh, I am a writer. How long have you been writing, Ian? I guess I've been making my living writing for about 15 years now, I would say. Yeah, something like that. About that, writing uh, screenplays, my day jobs in advertising. I also do a little bit of screenwriting on the side, which I guess is why we're talking today. How did you get involved with the Harry Knuckles films? So I was in school. I was in university back then. Um, Lee had started, Lee DeMarb. So Lee and Phil had started making the original Harry Knuckles, the uh, the five-minute trailer. The whole idea of the, the original Harry Knuckles film was it was going to be like a, a trailer for an action movie that didn't exist. So it meant that they could just film a bunch of action scenes that weren't really connected in any way by any story and then edit them together. And it would just be like a fun five minutes of low-budget action to watch. I got to know Lee through a mutual friend, and he mentioned at some point that he was looking for someone to uh, someone to write a voiceover, uh, sort of a narration for the trailer to sort of tie it together and, and imply a story where there was none. Uh, so he asked me to do that. And then, um, yeah, the rest is kind of history, Canadian B-movie history. And talking about those early days when you first met in, in that, was there a scene around Ottawa that was filmmakers or were you guys sort of the outliers? Well, I mean, there was a, uh, we were working with uh, IFCO, the Independent Filmmakers Co-op of Ottawa. There definitely was a filmmaking scene happening in Ottawa, like people have people actually shooting on film and making short films. And uh, every year, IFCO had a gala where they would screen all the films that had been produced by members during the year. I think most of what was being done were like little documentaries or dramatic pieces or experimental films. So in terms of being a bunch of guys who were producing goofy action comedies, yeah, we were kind of outliers. I would have to say so because Mike and I are both from the Detroit area and we grew up watching CBC because we could get uh-huh. over the river. And it seems like our exposure to Canadian film as kids was always the documentaries and little drama shorts that the Canadian film board or whoever would finance uh, to have done. So I would have to say that things such as Harry Knuckles and Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, yeah, kind of outside of what we would deem as quote-unquote typical Canadian fare. It does sort of, Jesus and, and Harry Knuckles do sort of tie back to sort of a, an earlier Canadian tradition or like a period in Canadian filmmaking, the tax shelter years, where uh, a lot of, there were like very generous tax write-offs for producers of Canadian films for a while there. So a lot of really B through Z grade films got produced in, in Canada on a lot of trashy genre films and, you know, that kind of thing. So we were sort of tapping into that earlier tradition as well. But, you know, I mean, that also, those those tax shelter years also spawned, like, people like David Cronenberg, so gave him a career. Now, were you guys able to take advantage of some of that Canadian funding when you were making your films? We got a little bit of money, actually. I shouldn't say that. We got a little bit of money from the uh, from the city of Ottawa, from the regional municipality. They had an arts grant. So I think we got like a couple thousand dollars from them at one point for, I'm not sure if that was one of the Harry Knuckles films or if that was Jesus. I can't quite remember. Um, But beyond that, yeah, we never went to like Telefilm Canada or the National Film Board or anything like that looking for 
looking for money. We just uh, financed these things out of our pockets, basically, and our relatives' pockets. We weren't spending a lot of money on them, so it wasn't too bad. Our main expense was just film and film processing and developing. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the budgets. When it came to how you guys were working with one another, Mm -hmm. you and Lee, did budget limit the storyline or did you kind of give yourself free reigns and then kind of pair it back after you realized how much something would cost? I don't think we really considered like the budgetary implications of whatever we were writing. We just, uh, whatever I was writing, I think we just figured that we would find a way to do it. And um, in most cases we do. And in most cases we did, but in a lot of cases also we were sort of just sort of brainstorming, spitballing ideas and then for action scenes and then writing a script to get us from one action scene to another. And a lot of those action scenes were based on, you know, things like, you know, uh, hey, I met this guy who owns a hovercraft. Can we write a hovercraft into the movie? There wasn't really, uh, yeah, I don't think we worried about budget. It was pretty fortuitous in that way. Would you say that there were certain things that would come up and then you would have an opportunity? Do you think that that uh, helped to add a certain flavor to the to the various films or did the budget kind of limit or or what you have kind of limit the ability to uh, pull stuff off? I don't feel like we were ever really limited by our budget, maybe just in terms of not being able to shoot as much. Uh, or do as many takes of things as we might uh, if we had more budget. Once the, once the camera starts rolling and you hear that film zipping through the sprockets, you know that uh, you know every second is money being spent. That was like I said, the, maybe it was mainly the film and the film processing and uh, the negative cut and stuff like that that were really expensive. I mean, I think when we did Jesus, I think our negative cut was ended up being half the budget of the film. But uh, other than that, like we kept our expenses pretty low. I think the most expensive, the second most expensive thing on Jesus was probably Phil's wig, which was like $300. And we used that wig a lot. We got our money's worth. I think it wasn't just Phil wearing it in that one. no, no, we uh, we reused that film and uh, that wig and lots of other movies and uh, all over the place, yeah. Now, I hear that you came up with the title for Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter and the rest just kind of fell in after it, but how did you go from the title to what the film would be? I don't know how much I really recall. I know that Lee and I were driving to Toronto and we were listening to Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller album, and that's when the that string of words popped out of my mouth, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Because I think we were just like wondering what our next project should be. Once you have that title, you know, the 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 title of the film is basically the premise of the film is basically a log line for the film and basically a plot synopsis for the film, you know? So we knew it was gonna be a movie about Jesus Christ fighting vampires or hunting vampires. He he does more really the title isn't all that accurate. He doesn't do a whole lot of hunting vampires, but we thought it sounded better than fighter. Anyways, so we basically with once we had the title, we knew what the film was going to be about. Um and then I think we added the element of uh lesbians and somehow we came up I'm not sure who came up with the idea of vampires that could walk in the daylight. I thought we just I think I think we just decided that they needed to be 
somehow different vampires. So we came up with that. And then we came up with the lesbians, and then we tied it together that the vampires were using skin grafts from the lesbians to allow them to walk in the daylight. It's all very logical. As for the actual writing of the script, how yeah. did it come together? Did it piece together based on, as you were saying, I got a guy who's got a hovercraft, or I've got a guy who's got this or that, or did you sit down and write a whole complete script and go, okay, here you go, what do you think? Yeah, we had like a, we had sort of an outline, just like a point form plot summary, I think. Once we had that, I think I went away, did a little bit of research which is to say I read the New Testament, um, which is pretty good for... I pulled a lot of stuff out of there. That's a useful little book for writers, at least. I don't know about other people, but it's good for writers. Yeah, and then I sat down and, and, and wrote the script. I can't, I can't remember exactly how long it took me, but I wasn't working at it all day, every day. I was still at my day job. So, I don't know. Sometimes, it probably took me something like a month or two to get a, a draft done. At that point, I just had like a um, a style sheet for Microsoft Word that I used for screenwriting. I think it was after Jesus. So maybe it was when we took Jesus to a film festival and I actually finally won a copy of Final Draft that I still use now for screenwriting. But How did you come to be Johnny Golgotha? I think I just wrote myself in. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm not a very good actor. I'm kind of terrible, actually, and uh, I don't know why I decided that uh, I would be good in front of the camera. But yeah, was uh, uh, I? I can't even remember how we decided that, but it wasn't a good decision. You know, the thing that's funny from the acting and the the creation standpoint of the film, and and all of actually, is um, how they. They, they reference other things that you might have seen. And I was just wondering, when you sat down to create this film and Harry Knuckles as well, what were some of the influences like uh, on you guys? Like, oh, we really like this, or we like you know, aspects of that, or you know, what, what were like, the big things for you? For Harry Knuckles and for Jesus, I think it was definitely a big part of it, was the uh, Hong Kong action films. Uh, and particularly like the, the the Jackie Chan stuff, Jackie Chan, Sam Hung, Yuen Biao, um, those guys. So the the more um, the, the you know all the Hong Kong action films with the big stunts and the big action scenes, but also with a uh, with a sense of humor. So there was definitely that. For Jesus in particular. Um, it was all, yeah, it was all the Hong Kong film, all the Hong Kong action films, but also uh, Last Temptation of Christ was a big influence on that. Also, like I was talking about earlier, the um, the Canadian tax shelter films that were often, you know, uh, big, gory horror movies, but very low budget. Um, that was definitely an inspiration. There's also an element of the musical in uh, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, and I was wondering, did you write the lyrics, or did someone else come up with that stuff? That was the other thing I was thinking of. Yeah, definitely the big, uh, like, classic Hollywood musicals. Um, I'm a big fan of musicals as well. I mean, to me, a well-choreographed musical scene can be as exhilarating as a big, big chop-socky fight in an action film, you know? So definitely things like uh, Guys and Dolls and Singing in the Rain and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas were big inspirations for this film as well. I think I did write the lyrics 
for the big musical number and for a couple of the smaller ones, although I can't claim any credit for uh, Everybody Gets Laid Tonight, which is the big rousing song that ends the film. I wish I had written that one, but I didn't. When it comes to the Hong Kong action films, were you a fan of those before you met Lee? You know what? I'm pretty sure he he probably introduced me to Jackie Chan. Not literally. No, not literally, if only. Although, you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't long after that that Dimension and some of the other uh, distributors, some of the other American distributors started releasing the uh, Jackie Chan films in North America. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was he was the one because he had worked at a video store and uh, he would order in these uh, the Jackie Chan movies or whatever action movies, whatever the Hong Kong action movies there were, or we would get them through like something weird video back in the day when you had to like get a paper catalog and and mail order these things and just you know blind luck what they would turn out to actually be like yeah and then you know we would like go down to Chinatown and and scour the video stores there for whatever was new whatever the new releases were. Herschel Gordon Lewis, that's a guy I forgot about. He was definitely an influence. So all of his films, uh, you know, 2000 Maniacs and uh, The Gruesome Twosome and Color Me Blood Red and The Wizard of Gore, all those movies were uh, a big influence as well. Now, what kind of sensibility, like, were you a fan of Herschel Gordon Lewis before you met Lee? I'm trying to think of what were your influences? What were the movies that really made you tick? It's like really all over the map. Um, I, again, I think I became a fan of uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis uh, when I, in particular, when I let me when I met Lee. But um, before that, like when I was in high school, it was it was all about bad cheap horror movies. That was what I watched nonstop. You know, as you know, I watched like any kind of movie really, but definitely the movies that made me tick. If uh, if you want to talk about it that way were the bad horror movies that I would rent from the convenience store in my town or the gas station or wherever the wherever I could get them. When sitting down to write Jesus and you said, you know, reading the New Testament helped, how do you see your Jesus stacking up against, as you mentioned, like Last Temptation or things like that? How How is he similar and how is he different? I would say he's probably a little less serious than the last temptation of Christ Jesus. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think we tried to, we tried to be a little bit philosophical in the film. We tried to say a few things. We tried to take the premise of, of having Jesus Christ fight vampires a little seriously. And, and we did spend some time thinking about, what Jesus would would do and say in a modern in the modern world, like what would uh, you know what would his lessons be today, and just the idea of of like approaching him as as a kind of a living breathing modern character as opposed to someone who lived two thousand years ago and and is out of you know has limited application to the to the modern world. Um, we thought, you know, like dump him into the modern world uh, fully and completely and let's just sort of see what happens. I mean, that was why we decided to have him cut his hair and shave his beard and mustache off, which is the thing that people complain the most about in the film. 
that's it. That's all they complain about because it always. Well, seems- it's not. <laughs> it's, just, it's so- definitely not the. It's not the only thing people complain about. <laughs> I was but it's ask- the complaint that I see more often than any other is that he he doesn't keep his like robes and long hair and beard long enough in the film. But we kind of felt like you know it's not like Jesus uh, two thousand years ago he wasn't wearing wearing robes and 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 he didn't have his hair long and he didn't grow beard and mustache he didn't do all that as like a fashion statement he did it because that's what everybody else did you know that was just like the look at the time and so people dressed so we thought if we came to the modern world there's no reason that he should still be running around you know in robes with long flowing hair there's no reason he wouldn't get a haircut and buy some new clothes it seemed it made sense to us but it seems to it seems to bother a lot of people. When you put that name in the title of a film and yeah, that yeah. character in the film, did you receive any protests, hate mail? Um, what did how did people react? Um, I mean, there were a, there were a few people who wrote us hate mail or some you know nasty letters or emails. Um, I don't, we didn't have anybody protesting the screenings. I don't think, I don't remember any protests. Um, uh, actually and and generally from religious audiences, we got our best reactions to it. Um, I know, uh, there were a couple of, a couple of ministers around town, uh, around Ottawa who really liked the film. Um, and mentioned it in sermons. Uh, I know the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops that puts together the uh, uh, textbooks for the Catholic School Board here included a picture of the poster in one of their textbooks. Um, I think in their, I don't know, it was like a a section on religion and media. Um, We had a screening at the uh, American Academy of Religion Conference. Someone uh, delivered a paper about the film um, to this, like, gathering of, like, academics and theologians from all across North America. Uh, They delivered a paper about the film and held a screening of it. When we screened in Utah for the, I think it was the Slam Dance Film Festival. It was one of our best crowds ever because there were a lot of uh, Mormons in the crowd and they, they knew the New Testament really well. Um, and they got a lot of the jokes that other people didn't. Like what? They picked up on the, there's a, there's a spot where Jesus literally turns the other cheek. They thought that was funny. Did the script change at all from when you first wrote it to the final product? Um, yeah, definitely. For sure, it did. I think our ending changed like three or four times during production. Um, the setting changed and what actually happened changed. The whole sequence at the end, the whole uh, sequence in the junkyard was sort of just created on the spot. I mean, we had like, we planned it out, but none of that was really scripted. In fact, none of the action scenes were really scripted. We were just like, you are just, get to the point in the in the movie where the action scene was going to happen and i just wrote action scene in all caps and then said who won the fight and that was it and then the script carried on how did the character of the kind of crazed priest come about 
Oh yeah, so the uh, the guy who introduces the film and and pops up back again every once in a while. That I think was a reference to a Russ Meyer film. That's what it was. I can't remember which one, but there's a Russ Meyer film that opens something like that. The camera is sort of tracking down a road, and this character stops the camera and warns the viewer about what they're going to see and then makes them decide if they want to keep watching or not. And then when they do, he like steps aside and lets the camera carry on. So we had this idea of doing something like that. And the actor who played the holy man, his name is Ivan Freud. uh, And he was a friend of Phil's from Montreal. Uh, He just had that look that he had that, the, the hair and that huge beard and those crazy piercing eyes um, like Rasputin or something. Uh, later on, he, he like shaved off his beard and cut his hair and he looked like a 14-year-old. Not at all intimidating. Very strange. I really didn't recognize him. Like he didn't look old enough to drink. Very odd. That's where that came from. And then, I don't know, I just sort of uh, went to town on his monologues and tried to make them like uh, crazy over-the-top like revival tent talk. I want to say I read once that the movie was going to start 2,000 years ago. Yeah, yes, that's right. I had completely forgotten about that. I think in the original draft of the script, uh, the, it, the movie did open 2,000 years ago uh, on uh, Uncle Gotha Hill, and it opened with Jesus being crucified, and then it, there was just going to be like a title card to that said like 2000 years later and i think we actually shot that too i remember i remember shooting phil lying in someone's driveway and then and him screaming and spraying blood on his face from getting his from having his hands nailed i'm sure that footage exists but we ended up not using it i can't remember why i think we just decided to get into the story faster it really didn't add anything i don't know i'm curious about some of the films that you made after the harry knuckles and jesus film like uh, the dead sleep easy and smash cut strip naked what was that like i mean it seems like those were such a departure from what you guys had done earlier what was the writing process like for you did how did that mature after jesus we did harry knuckles and the pearl necklace which was very i don't know we uh, we got a we had a really good response to Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, so we decided that we'd do something bigger and crazier, and uh, that was that was our Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace was our attempt to do that. It was going to be Harry Knuckles, and he's fighting a bionic Bigfoot, and he has an evil twin brother, and we just kept piling more and more ideas on top of it. Uh, and I was constantly writing and rewriting as we were shooting. And um, by the time we were done, uh, our first cut of the film was, I think, three hours long, which was wow. just insane. Um, I think I think the, f- the finished film is still nearly two hours long, which is way too long for a Harry Knuckles film. So after that, I think um, I think I decided that I needed to like not constantly rewrite while we were shooting and sort of like go away and 
produce a finished script and we would work with that. Um, there was a period after that where we wasted, oh, I'm going to say like three years trying to get a movie made in Jamaica. There's another big action film. Uh, it was supposed to star Fred Williamson, a black exploitation actor. The film is called Black Kissinger, and it was about a uh, tough black American cop named who happened to be named Henry Kissinger, uh, who went to went to Jamaica and got caught up in a, a whole scheme by a, a scrupulous land developer who was like bombing uh, bombing properties all over the island to drive down property values. And anyways, Henry Kissinger had to Henry our Henry Kissinger, Black Kissinger had to take him down. Um, anyways. Yeah, we wasted like, I'm going to say Lee and I had spent like three years trying to get that movie made and we sank a lot of money into it. So there is sort of a bit of a gap in our filmography there while we were doing that. The Dead Sleep Easy, the Dead Sleep Easy came about because we had started, uh, because we were making uh, a documentary called uh, uh, Vampiro, Angel, Devil, Hero, about a Canadian-born a uh, wrestler who moved to Mexico and became a uh, huge star of the Mexican wrestling scene. Um, so we were working on that documentary for, I don't know, two years, I think. Uh, and while we were making it, um, we developed the idea of making uh, a narrative film, a feature film starring this wrestler who goes by the name Vampiro. Um, so, yeah, we wrote and shot that in the middle of making the documentary. That's got to be easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No problem. And that was weird. That was like, we actually got, we actually got paid a little bit of money for that. So that was kind of cool. We had like an actual production company do it. And well, sort of an actual production company. I mean, the entire movie was shot for like $25,000. I think we did fly down to Mexico for a month and shoot the movie on location in Guadalajara. So that was kind of cool. And we all came, came away with a little bit of money in our pockets. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, stylistically, uh, that film is pretty different, but, um, uh, but it, I've, I've always been in, uh, I've always been a big fan of, uh, sort of film noir and crime novels, detective novels, that kind of thing. You're, you know, Raymond Chandler and Jim Thompson and Donald Westlake and all these guys. Um, so I wanted to write a crime movie for a long time. So that was my chance to finally do that. Another credit I saw online is that uh, you've written a reimagining of Shivers. Is that correct? Yeah, I have. Uh, I've, done, I've done like four drafts of that, and it's um, sort of sitting with the producer right now. They are trying to attract actors to raise money, and they're also trying to raise money to attract actors at the same time. So we'll see, uh, we'll see where that goes, but they're very, uh, very serious about getting it made. It's, uh, one of the original, one of the producers of the original film still held the, uh, the remake rights. Um, so yeah, he's involved and, uh, we'll see, hopefully it's going ahead. Hopefully, uh, sometime in the next year. And that obviously is one of those films that, you know, it's Cronenberg and it was, as yeah. you were saying, sort of tax shelter era of film. Uh, what sort of attracted you to, uh, to writing that? And for you, how is your version maybe a little different than the original? 
Um, I mean, I think the main thing that attracted me uh, was the idea that I, well, somebody was going to write it. And I thought if somebody's going to write it, it should be somebody who really loves the original film and is not going to screw it up. So that was sort of my mission was to not screw it up. Um, you know, uh, as for how my version differs, uh, depends on which draft you read. Um, there's, uh, you know what, there's, there's very little that's broken about the original film. So there is very little that needed fixing. It's a really lean, economical, smart little horror film that is, you know, I think a lot of people don't give David Cronenberg enough credit for just being a, a hell of an entertaining filmmaker. Um, especially in those early films, he was just delivering really entertaining, really fun, really smart stories. Uh, and Schubert's is one of those for sure. So I kept a lot of the original intact. I also updated a lot of it. I think I just, uh, I've given a little, a little thought to what is different about the world of 1975 and 2014 and tried to update it for a modern era. Also thinking about, you know, things like, uh, you know, cell phones and the internet and social media, that kind of stuff. I don't want to give too much away. I was going to say the original was so prescient a lot of, what it was dealing with, especially when it came to, um, you know, diseases and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I can only imagine that it's got to be pretty tough for you to cast your mind 20, 30 years in the future kind of thing to give it even a further reach than the original did. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. It's a darn fun challenge. Yeah. Well, cool. What else are you working on these days? So there's that. There's another crime film that I've written called Lot Lizard that's I don't know, Lee and I have a couple of different production companies looking at it, so we'll see if anything happens with that. It was actually the basis for, you mentioned Stripped Naked earlier. I had written this film, Lot Lizard, bought by a production company, and then they proceeded to change everything in the script and eventually the title as well. Lot Lizard became stripped naked, but there isn't a single character or situation or line of dialogue or anything left from the Lot Lizard script. So I eventually convinced the production company to give me the script back, uh, and we're going to try and get it made the way it was intended to be in the first place. Um, so that's going on. Um, so just earlier today I was working on, um, we're outlining a film about Ken Carter who was a stuntman in the 70s, uh, a real guy. They called him the Mad Canadian. His specialty was doing car jumps. Um, And uh, in the late 70s, he came up with this idea to jump a uh, uh, rocket-powered Lincoln Continental across the St. Lawrence Seaway from Morrisburg, Ontario, which is just outside of Ottawa, to New York State. So he was going to jump it across this river like a distance of a mile. And he spent five years, like, raising the money and building the rocket car and building this, like, 20-story ramp to jump off that. There was a documentary produced by the National Film Board in the early 80s about him. If anyone listening to this podcast ever gets a chance to watch it, you should. You can just go to the uh, National Film Board website, nfb.org 
www.ca and look it up. It's called uh, The Devil at Your Heels. It's an incredible documentary, but we want to do a feature film version of that. It's been sort of a dream project of ours for a while. So I think we're finally getting down to doing that. It's a, it's a, it's a huge epic story of car jumping. And um, I think we're finally getting serious about making the sequel to Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. The second coming, as it were. Yeah. Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter 2, Roman Holiday, is what we're calling it for now. This one, if you thought the original had everything, it didn't have time travel. And this one does. So basically the premise is that the uh, vampires, the surviving vampires, get a time machine uh, they travel back in time 2,000 years, and they take over the Roman Empire, and their plan is to kill, uh, to, yeah, to kill Jesus in the past before he has a chance to be crucified or become the, uh, the Messiah or anything like that. So present-day Jesus has to travel back in time to defeat the vampires in the past and make sure that his past self gets crucified to save mankind. Are you going to make poor Phil Caracas play two roles again? I'm, I'm afraid so. Unless I can find a way to bring in an alter, another timeline and then I'll make him play three roles. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> twice as much Phil is twice as much entertainment. Whenever we have folks on from, you know, different places, cities, countries or whatever, we always like to ask them what they see as the state of uh, film in their area. So how do you see uh, independent film in Canada and sort of where is it now and where is it going? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, Lee and I also own, um, are, par- are also part owners of an independent cinema here in Ottawa, the Mayfair Theatre. Actually, the oldest uh, independent cinema in Canada. Um, so we we actually have a chance to show a lot of independent films. You know what? I think that there are a lot of them out there, and I think a lot of them are really good. Um, I don't know if they're getting the exposure they need or they deserve, um, but we're definitely trying to help with that. You know, at the same time, there are more more venues than ever with uh, all the online platforms, the Netflixes and everything. Um, I would say state of film, state of independent film in Canada, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. Are there any that you've seen that we should be keeping an eye out for? One that's coming out soon that I'm hearing great things about is called Rhymes for Young Ghouls. It's sort of a revenge thriller the protagonist is like a teenage girl, uh, and it's set on like a, an Indian reservation. Um, but it also has this weird sort of post-apocalyptic vibe to it. It looks great. I've been hearing great things about it from film festivals.
right, we are back, and we are talking about Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. So, Rob, we've talked about vampires, and we've talked about Jesus. And how do you think that the two of them go together, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter? Well, they kind of uh, work together like uh, chocolate and the peanut butter, peanut butter and the chocolate, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. All right, good. Okay, that's it. <laughs> We're going to take another – No. <laughs> No, no, they work really well. I, I think that this this whole balancing idea of trying to uh, come up with a, a villain that Jesus could face off against, I think it's it, it's quite genius. I always found Jesus to be an interesting, you know, supernatural character, and I guess it kind of plays into what we'll be talking about next week. Um, we'll be talking more about Santo without the S rather than Santos when we're looking at the diabolical hatchet. And Santo is an interesting character where you get this whole mix of Catholicism with the sainted character and then the horror elements. And really, I think uh, this kind of fits right into that whole thing where you've got the religion and horror playing together. And really, I mean, over the last few years, and I'm sure that this really has been going on for much more than the last few years, but at least in cinema, I'm seeing a lot of kind of mashups of uh, religion and horror. Obviously, there's The Exorcist and everything, but even apart from that, there were a lot of, uh, especially around the year 2000, a lot of end of days type films, even including the film End of Days. You think you've seen everything? You haven't. There are things you never dreamed of. There's another world out there. You know, the other thing, too, is this mashup of having a religious figure who isn't necessarily Jesus, per se, fighting or doing something, but using sort of these elements of Jesus to some extent. Like, for example, the the one thing that I was reminded of as I was watching Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter is Peter Jackson's Brain Dead or Dead Alive, depending on the title you're looking at, with the priest. I kick ass for the Lord. The idea of this kung fu priest was was kind of funny. The the other one that I thought of when I was watching uh, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, although it's not a horror film uh, in that way, was uh, Robert Downey Sr.'s Greaser's Palace, and that with Alan Arbus as this sort of uh, Jesus. Um, I guess sort of a uh, jazzy kind of guy some for some reason in the old west and he can like resurrect people and he walks on water and he basically does all the miracles of Christ but he's like this zoot suited hepcat in you know the old west and just sort of totally anachronistic and I, that was sort of an idea like I was always watching it I was like it kind of reminds me of Greaser's Palace at least from that idea I can see that. I think really, you know, when you go back to some of the vampire stuff, I mean, the whole thing of the stake to defeat them, but then you have the cross to also, I guess, kind of deter them, even though the cross doesn't do a whole lot other than if you press it against a vampire's head, you, you know, sometimes you can burn them and everything. So sometimes we kind of lose the religious aspect of the vampire stuff and looking at something like, um, Oh, God, and I hate to even talk about it, but looking at something like a Twilight, I mean, there's, <laughs> as far as I know, no real Christian imagery kind of stuff in that film. They kind of really divorce it from that. So this kind of goes completely the opposite way and goes into a much more religious point of view. This is kind of more, and again, another bad film, but I'm going to mention it anyway. This kind of reminds me of John... 
Carpenter's Vampires, where you have the vampire hunters working hand-in-hand with the uh, Catholic Church. So, again, that movie could have been a lot better, but there were some interesting aspects to it. And I think they pull it off a lot better by having Jesus himself kind of kicking ass in this one. You know, it is true, the whole thing with the cross, as you were bringing up, and this reminds me of what my dad told me when he was a kid. The League of Decency, which was uh, an offshoot of the Catholic Church, used to put out these lists of films. And if you're familiar with John Waters talking about this as well, saying that, you know, they would put out the list of movies that you weren't supposed to see and the list of movies that you could see. And my dad was always confused, he said, as a kid about why they put the original Bela Lugosi Dracula on the list. He goes, it was considered a condemned film. You weren't supposed to see it. And my dad said, it doesn't make any sense because at the end of the film, they drive him back into the coffin with a cross. So it's like, you, you know, what's more, what, what would be more, you know, in line with the teachings than that? But obviously they, they thought that, uh, I guess Lugosi was too sexy for the first, uh, you know, 120 minutes of the film before the end there. That's one thing I do like about Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter 2, and this is not a slam against it, but it's a short film. You know, it's 90 minutes long, maybe even 84 minutes, something like that, but it moves. It has a really good pace to it, and it keeps it going very, very well. And so you don't necessarily get bored watching this film. And there are so many films where even when I like them, if they're over 90 minutes, sometimes I'm checking my watch. I have to agree, you know, saying with John Waters again, you know, no comedy should be over 90 minutes. And these guys really keep it at that with Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter. I think that's part of the reason why I had the problem with the Harry Knuckles film was that, it's light, it's fun, it's a comedy to me. It should be faster paced, but you know, hey, you know, can't hit them out of the park all the time. Yeah, maybe sometime in the future we'll have a um, a director's cut or a, maybe even a fan cut of Harry Knuckles and the Pearl Necklace. You never know. People have done stranger fan cuts in time. <laughs> well, as you heard in the interview, that film was originally three hours long. So I don't know. Maybe would, would you want to see the three hour cut? Well, maybe I want to see two hour and a half versions. I don't know. It it moves faster than Wolf of Wall Street, let's say. Although if there is a four hour version of Wolf of Wall Street, I will watch it. Even though I know you will. Even though it would probably be torturous for me at times. (laughs) All right, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. No es posible. Juntos hemos resuelto los más complicados crímenes y misterios santo. Pero nunca nos habíamos enfrentado a nada semejante. Esta hacha pertenece al siglo XVII, cuando en Europa y en la Nueva España, la Inquisición condenaba a la hoguera a los que tenían pactos con el demonio. ¿1603? ¿Qué significa este símbolo, doctor? Simboliza el mal, los poderes de Satanás. ¿Qué sabe usted de sus antepasados, santo? Lo único que sé... Es lo referente a mi disfraz. Mi padre me lo entregó en artículo de muerte, diciéndome que había pertenecido a uno de mis antepasados. Parece estar hecho de un material indestructible. Es asombroso. Y otra cosa extraña, doctor. Me he dado cuenta también que en situaciones de extremo peligro y cuando creo estar a punto de perder todas mis energías, siento que mi máscara me da fuerza y fortaleza. Vamos a examinarla, santo.
su máscara, santo, también tiene un símbolo. ¿Qué significa, doctor? Este símbolo protege a su poseedor contra todo maleficio. Como usted mismo ve, aquí está el triángulo que se opone al símbolo que tiene el hacha. ¿Y qué quiere decir la palabra abracadabra? Tuvo su origen en el nombre de un sabio que practicaba la ciencia del bien, llamado Abraca. That's right, Santo returns next week with the diabolical hatchet. We'll be joined by El Goro from Talk Without Rhythm podcast to discuss Mexploitation Cinema. I want to thank this week, once again, Lee Dimbarb and Ian Driscoll for taking the time to come on and talk to us. And thank you for listening.
These are simple magic tricks. His magic is interesting, but will it put food on your table? Feeding the hungry, now that is a miracle. Behold, I have here five loaves of bread and three fish. Certainly not enough to feed this entire crowd, but now, turn around. Turn around. Okay, now turn back. Now how the hell did he do that? 